Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. In his latest book, The Devil You Know, a Black Power Manifesto, New York Times columnist and best-selling author Charles Blow argues that it is time for a reverse migration in which black Americans move to the South. In this way, according to Blow, blacks can consolidate their political power and bring momentum to a political agenda that will truly result in black lives mattering. We'll talk with Charles Blow, who has taken his own advice and moved to Atlanta after 26 years of living in New York. And that's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Seize it, migrate, move. This is the crux of journalist and New York Times columnist Charles M. Blow's newest book, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. He argues that the great migration of blacks from the rural south to northern urban centers did not deliver on improved social and economic conditions, and that the fastest way to fight systemic anti-black racism is for blacks to migrate to the south, where they can more easily consolidate political power. Charles Blow has taken his advice to heart and moved from New York to Atlanta. And he joins us now to talk about his book and to explain how a reverse migration could move progressive policies like reparations and criminal justice reform forward. And welcome, Charles Blow. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you with us and uh, anxious to talk about your book, which I read with great interest. But I thought first we could talk a little bit about the impeachment trial because it's tomorrow and you've written a lot about it. And uh, I'm just interested in hearing your impressions and thoughts at this point. Uh, we've got uh, essentially at this point, Trump's lawyers arguing for dismissal, the Republicans saying the second impeachment trial is unconstitutional because he's not in office and it's being used simply as a kind of political theater to divide us. I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Well, uh, I think it is uh, constitutional, uh, even though I'm not a constitutional scholar. Uh, just what I've read about it, it, it is constitutional use of power. It, otherwise, if you if it were not, uh, it would say that future president, whoever you you may be, he or she, uh, in the last days of your presidency, you can do whatever you want because you'll be out of office soon and there will be no way to hold you accountable whatsoever. That's that's problematic on its face. So I believe that you know you have to do it. Now, will Republicans go along? It does not look like they will, you know, you'll get 17 Republican votes to join the Democrats. Um, but 
nonetheless, it's important to do. It is important for the country, for the legislature, for the government itself to say to history that we recognize that this was wrong. We could not get our fellow Republicans to buy in, but we had to do something and we took a stand. I think on that, just on the merits of that, it's important to do. And I'm also wondering, since you wrote very critically of President Trump, uh, consistently critical about him, and I want to talk with you about your Black Power book, uh, about President Trump saying that he really was responsible for more power and more, shall we say, uh, rewards for blacks than any president since Abraham Lincoln. Well, I don't know if we need to talk about that. That's false uh, uh, on its face. Um, you know, the, the president has a, a penchant to lie. And he has, he likes to be, he, he likes to brag about things. He's like to say that he's the best and he's done the most and he's uh, the supreme being. And uh, uh, there's no need for me to try to dissect that when I know you and I both know that it's a lie. And let's talk about black power. Uh, when I think about black power, of course, I think of Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael. And to some extent, your book really brings us into a recognition of the black migration that Isabel Wilkerson has written about and how things historically could have been very different and now can be very different if, uh, well, historically, if blacks, for example, had not decided to move to the north in great numbers. Uh, and now the opportunity to really restore power by essentially having them move back, that's kind of at the core of your book, isn't it? Absolutely. That, that is, you've summed it up, summed it up well. So let's talk about it. Let's, let's deconstruct it a bit if we could. I mean, to some extent, uh, you come across with an argument that a lot of people would find um, disturbing that uh, when you, in fact, you begin with an epigraph from uh, James Baldwin, the idea that the North and the South really don't have that much of a chasm of difference in terms of the way blacks have been treated and uh, the way they have been uh, suffering by racism or victim by, victimized by racism. Right. But but I think we have to interrogate that question, which is why would people find that disturbing? Why would, why would people find it disturbing that black people having waited 400 years for true, lasting um, in, uh, liberation decided they didn't want to wait anymore? Why would that be disturbing or shocking or radical in any way? I suppose the, the shock might come from the fact that there's an identification. You say the, the South uh, racism is like an old man, the uh, Northern racism is like a teenage boy, but many people identify Jim Crow and segregation and all of the violence that led many to leave in the Great Migration with the South rather than with the North. Yes, and so uh, like, uh, like I say in that, in that passage you're quoting from, that many of the things that the South did, the North and the West are now doing. Um, because uh, racism is not geographic or sectoral, but it is proximity and scale dependent. When there were very few black people outside of the South, only 10% of black people lived anywhere outside of the South uh, until, until um, uh, the Great Migration began. It was easy for white people then to say, um, you know, Southern brethren, you're doing a horrible thing. You're vile. You're horrible for doing this thing. The moment that black people showed up in mass in northern and western cities, those white people started to behave in many of the very same ways. When Martin Luther King uh, uh, 
after passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, moves to Chicago to start work on um, his campaign for fair housing, that the reaction in Chicago is tremendous against him. He says, you know, uh, um, Andrew Young once said, like, you know, they would show up in some southern city and a couple hundred Klansmen or white supremacists would come out and uh, protest against him. When they showed up in Chicago to protest, thousands of white people showed up to counter protest. And they picked up and threw everything they could get their hands on. Martin Luther King was knocked to the ground that day. He says in his own words that he had, of all the things he had ever endured, he had never seen anything so vicious as what he had seen that day in Chicago. I think we, you know, uh, the northern northerners, particularly northern liberals, like to take, you know, sit on the high horse and say, well, that's not us. But how is it not you? Well, in fact, I think King said that he had never seen racism. That was in Cicero specifically, like he had seen in that part of Chicago. Um, And I think, as you point out in your book, uh, in this uh, recent unfortunate tragedies, terrible tragedies that have occurred with violent uh, deaths of unnamed, uh, excuse me, of unarmed blacks, more in the north. Uh, disproportionately more in the north than in the south. Right. The the high profile cases have been disproportionately in the cities to which black people migrated during the Great Migration. And yet we also have uh, New York City now with, uh, as you point out, the most segregated school system in the United States as well. Absolutely. And so so you've moved to you've moved to Atlanta. Right. And you're urging blacks to move to Atlanta in large numbers and do essentially what I suppose we could say as a paradigm, Stacey Abrams and others like her were able to accomplish in Georgia. Right. But not only uh, encouraging people to move back to Atlanta, to move back to cities and states across the South. Especially the Deep South? Well, Atlanta is a part of uh, Georgia is the Deep South. Yes, including the Deep South, especially the Deep South. And again, we're talking to Charles M. Blow, author of a new book called The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto, and also New York Times columnist. I I was struck by so many things in your book, but one, uh, I mentioned Stacey Abrams is the paradigm here, and now we have uh, not only an African-American senator in Georgia, but also a Jewish senator uh, in a state that lynched a, a Jew back in uh, 1919, I believe it was, Leo Frank. This is, however... Um, you know, I'm thinking about what you say inspired you, which was hearing uh, Harry Belafonte. Uh, Harry Belafonte, I had the great privilege of uh, uh, co-hosting an event with once, and um, he was a firebrand. Um, and uh, it's quite a story. He and Sidney Poitier were essentially sticking up for and raising money for SNCC, a student nonviolent coordinating committee. They were chased by the Klan, and uh, you were inspired by him. Absolutely. I mean, um, it, it's it, it, it's a different kind of celebrity that um, uh, Belafonte and even Sidney Poitier, who is his best friend, um, inhabited and enjoyed. At the height of their celebrity, they were risking everything, not only their reputations, their careers, but also their lives in the, the quest for um, civil rights and equality. And, you know, I always think, I wonder if there are celebrities today in any community who would do that? Uh, That's a good question in itself. And it also brings us to something else that you write about. Uh, After the murder of George Floyd, there was tremendous 
uh, response, uh, and it was mostly, as you point out in your book, uh, whites more than blacks, Hispanics more than blacks, but also uh, you say essentially it was a kind of social, social justice uh, Coachella, a systemic racism Woodstock. In other words, uh, it didn't. It didn't. It was kind of feel good by you, I guess, wasn't it? Well, it was. It, that happened in the context of another crisis, which was the pandemic. And at the time that George Floyd was killed, um, the economy had basically shut down. Uh, uh, schooling had shut down. Uh, all p young people had been robbed of rites of passage. There were no proms. There were no concerts. There were uh, no movies. You could go on no dates, really. And uh, all of a sudden, this thing happens. It is horrible. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in addition to your horror, you're allowed to congregate over this, uh, tragedy and that congregational excuse, that kind of hall pass that it granted, I think a lot of people took advantage of. Did they also believe that this was wrong? I think most people did. Um, were they moved to go out to the streets only because they thought it was wrong or because they could also get together with friends and like-minded people and be in a congregational setting. I think that that was a contributing factor. Yeah, you're right about it. It's kind of cabin fever and feel good, but also say that there was as a result of those demonstrations, no shift in power and nothing really occurred uh, in terms of equity and justice. Exactly. I mean, there were, uh, states like California and New York passed a limited police reforms. Uh, some police departments banned chokeholds, but only a, f a small fraction of them. But nothing about the uh, the power system that necessitated necessitates people becoming into contact with police in those communities, in those ways that inevitably end up in these tragedies. None of that power shifted. And we'll talk more with Charles Blow about his book and about Black Power. And please feel free to join us. You can do that now, toll free. The number to call, 866-733-6786. Join us at 866-733-6786. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We're talking on Forum with New York Times columnist Charles M. Blow. He has a new book out called The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. And if you have something you'd like to add to this conversation, or if you'd simply like to join us with questions or comments, you can give us a call now. Our toll-free number is 866-733-6786. Again, the number for your calls, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or Email us, forum at kqed.org. I think Frederick Douglass said it best, uh, blacks need to pray with their legs, and that gets us right to the heart of, again, Charles Blow's new book, the idea that if you're going to move progressive policies, uh, you're going to have to have dominant numbers, and those voting can really make the difference. And I think you're also saying that uh, it's not the South it used to be. You feel um, less tense, you've said, in Atlanta uh, when you see police? Yes, but but the feeling is only part of it. The the other part of it is is statistical and numerical. Um, 
there are now 1,200 majority black cities in, in America. 90% of them are in the South. Uh, in 1973, Maynard Jackson becomes the first black mayor of a majority black city when he becomes uh, in the uh, first mayor of, of a southern, a large southern city when he becomes mayor of uh, Atlanta. Now it is uh, hard to find major southern cities that do not have black mayors. The entire politics of uh, urbanity in the South has changed. Many of those places have majority black police forces and have or have had in recent years uh, black police chiefs. So the idea that you could have a kind of a archipelago of safe spaces of uh, where black municipal control is not anomalous at all, but is in fact a regional um, uh, kind of normalcy is incredible. And you juxtapose that to places like New York, where I come from, where the only one city in the entire state of New York is majority black, and that's Yonkers, or California, where not a single city in the entire state of California is majority black. You also got uh, the argument here that uh, the Senate is going to be tilting towards smaller states, which will make uh, voting rights much harder uh, in terms of the federal picture. And the reality, I think, that you argue here is that um, there's much more economic flourishing going on in the South as well. Absolutely. When Forbes does its list of places where the black middle class is thriving, half of that list is cities in the South. When you look at uh, where there's consolidation or large percentages of uh, Black-owned businesses, the Southeast ranks uh, highest among that list. When you look at places where the median household income has risen uh, most, the South, the South ranks incredibly high on that list. The idea that you cannot prosper as a Black person in the South uh, is mythology at this point. Let me bring a caller on. Lisa joins us, and you can join us again toll-free at 866-733-6786. Lisa, welcome. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, thanks for having my question. I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Um, from what I understand of the introduction, the argument is that, um, Mr. Blow, you believe black people from, you know, who went north in the Great Migration should go south in the name of political power, Um among other things. I'm curious if you have seen the kind of organizing that we saw change the political landscape of Georgia, um, if you are already seeing that taking place in other states in the South, and they just need um, sort of an influx of population to support them, or if you think the population needs to move there in order for those movements to take root and grow. Well, that's a very good question, because in Georgia, the population came first, right? So there have been people organizing, and there are people uh, organizing all over the South all the time about trying to get uh, to fight voter suppression, get more people um, uh, registered. Uh, it was just a concentrated effort here in Georgia in this in the last two years that has been just off the charts. But the the population came first. The black population of Georgia doubles from 1990 to 2000. It goes from 1.7 million to over 3.4 million people. The last time that Georgia went um, Democratic was 1992. At that point, 
uh, black people only made up 25% of the state of Georgia. This year, they made up 33% of the state of Georgia, and that allowed them to be the majority of the coalition that both changed the state and elected those two senators, which was the first time that it happened in American history. Again, our guest is Charles Blow. His new book is The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. And our next caller is Tony. Tony, join us. Welcome. You're on the air. It's an honor to pose a question to Charles Blow. Uh, isn't it ironic that uh, Americans, led by Eleanor Roosevelt, persuaded the UN General Assembly to adopt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and the United States eventually ratified the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination? And yet today, the United States itself fails to conform to those norms that have become universally recognized, if not universally honored in practice. Yeah, I, you know, it, it it's, uh, I, I guess, on some level shocking, on some levels expected. I mean, what I see uh, is a continued campaign to suppress some people and elevate others. The American Anthropology Association puts it this way, that race is a creation. Uh, it is a construct that it does not exist in any way the way we think of it. Uh, uh, strictly based on appearance and physical characteristics, uh, that it was created uh, and weaponized to kind of uh, permanently assign certain people benefits in society and to permanently assign other people to a lower caste, particularly Black people and Native Americans, and that it worked incredibly well. I do not see that system releasing its uh, releasing its power over the American governmental systems. That is just not what I see. When I see happen in Georgia, uh, and then as soon as the state legislature goes back into session, they start to uh, propose a raft of um, uh, uh, legislation that would make it harder for people to vote so that what happened this time would not happen again. That's what happens in America. When, when it looks like black people are going to make some sort of progress, there's a swift and brutal backlash to that progress. That is the American way. That is what history teaches me about a way, the way America behaves. One race, the human race, uh, I think I'm gleaning from what you're saying, but also from reading you, I started off by asking you about the Republican argument that it's against unity uh, having this trial, which may not result certainly in a conviction, but nevertheless, you said is necessary historically. And you write in your book that unity has often been conflated with silence of the oppressed and pacification of the oppressors. Uh, unity to America means, uh, as you say, quiet capitulation. Right, that is true. Um, you know, because actually, you know, it's very confounding to me what people even mean when they say unity. What does that mean? People were unified uh, in the acceptance of slavery. People were unified in allowing Jim uh, Crow to be uh, sewn into the constitutions of the southern states. And the federal government never mobilized against those southern states to stop that from happening. It's That stayed in place for 60 years. Nobody did anything about it. No one did anything about it. Yeah. You know, so what does, you know, what does unity mean to us? I suppose in some people's minds, it means uh, something that occurred after the Civil War, that unity means North and South, doesn't it? Okay, well, so, so then we are unified today in allowing mass incarceration to, to uh, fester and prosper 
prosper all across the United States. We are unified in just sitting back and allowing that to be disproportionate numbers of black people. We're, we're, if you're in San Francisco, San Francisco locks up per capita more African-Americans than any other major city in America. And it's one of our most liberal cities. And so these liberals, is that unity? With whom am I supposed to unify around that? Well, here's a comment from a listener named Greg who writes, Blacks, whites, everybody is moving to the south. Then the north is dead for blue collar and stagnating for white collar. Everybody's going south because the southern Republican states offer no tax, no regulation, low paid jobs for workers. So it's booming. Elon Musk is going there to escape regulation and unions. Is this good? Every well, the, 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 statistics, the statistics do not back that up. Everyone is not migrating to the South. There are things about the South that attract some migrants. There's another great migration happening right now, though, which is urbanization. It's happening both in the United States and around the world. Uh, in the United States, it is mostly young, college-educated white uh, kids um, or young adults uh, reversing the trends and decisions that their parents and grandparents made to move into the suburbs, exurbs. Uh, they are also moving out of states that don't have large metro, uh, large cities, and into states that do have them. So that's happening. So that doesn't mean that the, that New York or or Pennsylvania or, or I'm sorry, Philadelphia or any other Boston is being depopulated. Far from it. It's just mm-hmm. that the South is not the pariah of the of, of the um, of the democracy. There are advantages to being in the South as as there are advantages to being in other parts of the country. But would reverse migration mean possibly more social dislocation and cut the black uh, populations of the North in terms of balance of power at the federal level? Um, But you have to ask yourself, how much power do black people actually have at the federal level in those northern and western states? So, uh, you know, we are we often talk about, you know, black people turn the vote in a Pennsylvania uh, or Michigan. Yes, but black people can only do that when white people basically split their vote in half. Black people are only 11% of the population in Pennsylvania. Only when white people say, half of the, half of white people say, I want to vote the Republican, half say I want to vote the Democrat, does that 11% even come into play in a major way? That means you're not dictating anything. You're just coming in to balance the scale when everybody else splits. That means that your, your priorities are not uh, the major priorities. If your priorities were the major priorities in 2016, when Donald Trump won the presidency, they would have looked at you and said, how do we uh, get these black voters to be more engaged? What what set of policies can we give to them that will make them want to come out to the polls? They would have done that. But that is not what they did. For two years, they talked about how do we appeal to the middle uh, middle America white voters that we lost? Somehow appealing to voters who could somehow make the delineation in their minds that they could vote for Barack Obama in one election and Donald Trump in the next, they were that fickle. Those were the people that the Democratic Party put their energy into uh, getting back. I think I'm quoting you, Charles Blow, in the book. You say Democrats need to be unflinching in their reproval. I think that's a column. Uh, um but but well, I that is from your column. I'm sorry. That's right. Yeah, I was thinking it was in the book, but it is in the column. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, listen, I think that they um, they need to be unflinching in that way. I also believe that black people need to be unflinching in their demands of a system when they are giving ninety plus percent of their vote to a particular party. Right. And, we'll and, bring and, another- and I also want to make sure that I'm saying out here, and so that all of your listeners know this. When I say black power, I am not saying Democratic Party power or Republican Party power or any party power. 
What I'm saying is have enough power that you can uh, uh, put a little uh, pressure on whatever party you are you plan to support. Right now, you're so diffused that you cannot deliver on your own a single state. Georgia, uh, when delivering this state for uh, for Biden, that was the first time, at least since Reconstruction, I just don't know the data on Reconstruction, at least since Reconstruction, that black people, the majority of coalition that delivered a state for a candidate. That's what power looks like because now they have to, they have to deal with you. How do we keep them rather than excite them around election time because they are just the extra 10, 15% that we need. Underlying your whole argument, I think it's fair to say that uh, there's a failure of liberal politics uh, when it comes to white, when it comes to black power or really the battles against white supremacy. I th absolutely. I think that we uh, often conflate, conflate liberalism with racial egalitarianism, and they are not necessarily the same thing. They are not completely overlapping circles. Someone can be very much uh, for fighting climate change, for a woman's right to choose, for gay marriage, and also be white supremacist. Those are not overlapping. You know, the idea that you could have a uh, crazy racialized system like stop and frisk that was abusing young black men and also boys, always remember that some of those were children. Michael Bloomberg's uh, bottom age for his policy was 16 years old. Those are children. And yet every time Quinnipiac asked the citizens of New York whether they agreed with that policy or not, even though they knew it was doing damage, a majority of white people in that city said they were perfectly fine with it. And we'll bring more callers aboard here. Cole joins us. Cole, thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Krasny. Uh, Mr. Blow, I appreciate your conversation. You kind of already answered uh, my question for me, but I'll posit it anyway. I wanted to ask, do, from someone who has a family in Atlanta and on my paternal side and my maternal side, that family left the South to get away from the rampant uh, racism that they faced, came out to California I know some of those people are moving back, but do you believe that we're just going to continue to uphold those Bible Belt Southern state values, or is it going to become more purple and there's going to be, because that, that's the reason why I left Atlanta. Uh, you know, I just, you know, as the city was put together, you know, you had to drive everywhere. You had to, you know, there, there was really no way to get around if you didn't have a car. Uh, I'm not just saying those fall under white values, but there are, you know, cities that are that black people are coming together to, you know, start themselves. But what's going to prevent that from becoming the next Tulsa or the next Africa town? Uh, I'll take my comments off the air and thank you. All right. Thank you, Cole. Charles. Blow. Well, I mean, I, there, there are a couple of the, uh, uh, questions or sentiments embedded in the, in, the, in what the caller said. One is, number one, what I'm suggesting is a revolutionary act. Revolutionary acts do not come without uh, risk and do not come without resistance. So if people are, uh, think that there's going to be some um, uh, cakewalk uh, to, uh, to having access to power, that's not what's going to happen. You have to look, think in both terms of your personal um, values and what would be beneficial to you, but you also have to think in terms of legacy and community. This is, you know, the Great Migration was a generational undertaking. It lasted 60 years. 
And that's why you have these communities in the cities that you have them in all around the country. If you engage in a reverse migration, it is also going to be a generational undertaking. The benefits of it may redound to your children before they redound to you. You have to be in it for that purpose. I have three children in the world. They're all young adults. I want to leave this planet with them not having to fight the same battles that I have to fight. If that means that I have to drive a little bit more than I would drive in New York City, so be it. Well, when you speak of generations, I can't help bringing up the fact that you write about the fact that you, as a young man, were stopped by police in college. Uh, cops said you, he could shoot you and those who were with you uh, if he wanted to. He uh, went through that terrible traumatic experience, and your son was held at gunpoint at Yale by a police officer. That is true, um, and you know, and that also goes and goes. Speaks to me. I was using I was using it as illustration of the idea that even if you get out of the South, that that trauma is everywhere. You know, he's at Yale. He's at he's you know Connecticut. That's a a, a liberal state. Um, he's at a library of all places. Uh, so there's no way to escape it. So the best thing you can do is to go to places where you can amass enough power to effectively fight it. And we'll continue with our guest, Charles M. Blow, again, New York Times columnist and author of a new book called The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. If you'd like to join us, the toll-free number is 866-733-6786. And you can also, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And this is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're spending this hour with Charles M. Blow, author of a new book called The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. He is a columnist with The New York Times, and our next caller is O.V. in Oakland. O.V., welcome. You're on the air. Okay. Thanks for taking my call. My comment is that uh, Mr. Blow is missing a key element. He has not mentioned the class factor at all. So if Black's moving back to the South, taking over positions of power is not necessarily going to change the status of the ordinary working class black. Look at um, uh, Baltimore under the Freddie Freddie, uh, 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 Gray situation where the mayor was black, the the chief of the National Guard that they sent in was black, the head of the police department was black, many of the policemen were black, but still you had this uh, atrocity that took place. Look at the Black Caucus. The Black Caucus has not done any. I'm African-American myself. And the Black Caucus has not done anything for black people for decades. They supported, for the most part, mass incarceration. So there's a heavy class factor. Uh, A lot of blacks moving back to the South would just replicate 
a, a middle class would be established, but the masses of blacks, blacks would be left out unless you change the total economic system and the class system. You're just going to replicate this, uh, the class system that you find in most of the country where most people are just left out. Ovi, I thank you for the call. And you want to address class and Ovi's comments? Sure, there are a couple Council? of things in his question, but I'll address the top line uh, first, what, uh, which is this. I am not suggesting that moving south will create some sort of racial utopia because you'll have racial majorities in a, in a, a state. If racial majorities and racial control of power created utopias, then every white person in America would be prospering right now for the, because for the last 90 years, every state in America except Hawaii has been majority white. But they are not prospering. They are still class divides. There's still income inequality. There's still poverty. There is still uh, uh, food insecurity. Uh, right now, or at least at the last census, there were uh, six, seven uh, states that were 90 plus percent white. Surely all of those people, white people, are prospering. No, they are not. They still have the same class issues, the, the same uh, income inequality. If you move that out to 85%, the number of states doubles. The difference is power. There are four times as many black people in America are, that are in those seven states that are 90 plus percent white. Uh, but black people don't control 14 Senate seats as they do, Right. They are. They have a, 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 con, a, a, a contingent of legislators, particularly senators, which I concentrate on, that respond just to them, and they are those states make up just three percent or something of the American population. Do you think that's what power looks like? Do you think power is shifting to any degree because uh, Trump is no longer president and Biden is president? I think it was one of your columns where you said you felt relief that Biden was elected, but you still feel rage. Well, that's well, but but that feelings are not about power. I mean, I, I think we have to keep. I'm gonna have to keep saying that every time you bring up feelings, feelings are not about power. I don't care how I feel is not important to me. Whether or not I have power power enough to address a system to make it bend to uh, to accommodate me, to recognize me, to see me as equal, that is the only thing that that is important to me. As Stokely Carmichael once said, uh, if if someone wants to lynch me, that's their problem because that's a feeling. If they have the power to lynch me, now that's my problem. I only care about whether or not I have the power to be free, have the power to pursue happiness and equality in this country or not. How another person feels, how I even feel on any given morning or any given day is not important to this conversation. Let me read a tweet from Matthew. He writes, honestly, it shouldn't always fall on black, indigenous and people of color to save us. We move from... The Bay to Arkansas in 2019, California can afford to lose 3 million Democrat voters to spread out among rural counties and southern states. The pandemic revealed how many jobs can be done from anywhere. Agree, Charles Brown? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, a lot of those um, uh, blue states are so reliably blue that in, any diminution in um, uh, black uh, population or any, any other population will be uh, hardly felt. Black people are only 5% of the population in California. If every black person moved out of California tomorrow, California would still be reliably blue. And again, getting back to the Great Migration, uh, I think you say that uh, so many moved because uh, the devil they knew uh, was not what they thought the devil they didn't know would be, but the devil is the devil. 
Yes, I, meaning that uh, racism is everywhere. You know, we we have been trying to figure out some space on this in this country where the imprint of racism was lightest. And every time we think we found a place, uh, America shows us that racism is everywhere. And and it is vicious everywhere that it exists. Here's another caller joining us. Jorge, good morning. You're on the air. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Great conversation. Um, you just mentioned power. I was, I'm, I'm probably going to change my question now because you just mentioned power. And uh, when you say power... Um, I have a, an, an interesting view, I guess. I mean, I'm an immigrant, and uh, I feel like the same issues that affect uh, Hispanic immigrants or immigrants in general are the same issues that affect uh, African-Americans. So what is a way for uh, our communities to fight the good fight together? I guess that's the best way to put it. Thank you, and I'll take my answer out off the air. All right, okay, thank you for the call. Charles Blow. Sure. Uh, listen, uh, 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 alliances are always great uh, when you can agree. The problem is that um, uh, just because people are part of uh, non-white, uh, in many cases, minority groups in this country, does not mean they agree on everything. And in fact, uh, what I'm uh, most interested in fighting is both white supremacy and also anti-blackness. And a lot of societies around the world, in fact, it's hard to find a society around the world where there is some difference in the way people look and there are darker people and lighter people where the darker people are not assigned the lowest caste. And, and a lot of times we get immigrants from places where that is also the case. That's just the truth. Uh, when you, and when you look at uh, uh, as the implicit, uh, the project implicit, which measures implicit bias among people, they broke their data down by racial groups. Um, there's just as much anti-black, pro-white implicit bias among Hispanics as there is among whites. And the group with the, the highest percentage of pro-white, anti-black implicit bias is Southeast Asians. So I would like to say, you know, browning of America is going to mean that everybody's going to be on the same page and we're going to be fighting uh, white supremacy, anti-blackness. Uh, that is just not the way the data breaks. Donald Trump won a third of the Hispanic and a third of the Asian vote in 2016. That's after all his racism against Barack Obama and after him calling Mexicans uh, rapists and, mur and murderers and whatever. And then though the, his percentage in immigrant neighborhoods surged this time around. So what are your thoughts about uh, Kamala Harris being elected vice president from both Asian and black backgrounds, actually a graduate of Howard University and someone who has perhaps the most progressive record in the U.S. Senate in terms of voting? I think uh, representation is incredibly important. I think it is important for uh, 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 Southeast Asians and black people to see that this is possible, that somebody can, someone from your uh, so who looks like you can be in that space. I think it's Im important for little girls to see that someone uh, who is a woman can be in that space. Uh, but I believe that it does very little to change the dynamics of power in America. No, in, no individual presidency ever does much to change those dynamics. The biggest thing that people do, uh, presidents do around the issue of power is the appointment of federal and Supreme Court justices. And James joins us. James, you're our next caller. Welcome. Thank you for waiting. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you uh, both for this conversation. Uh, Mr. Bull, I wanted to point out, uh, you know, we, we have very recent examples of, I think, the dynamic you're talking about uh, with the Super Bowl. You've got the NFL pledging to give, I believe, $250 million uh, to, to fight for, uh, you know, black freedom and fight against white supremacy. At the same time, Colin Kaepernick, whose salary would be a fraction of that, can't get a job with the NFL. So it seems to be the same the, the kind of performative uh, conciliatory dynamic that you talk about where um, there's an appearance of support, but no actual seeding or sharing of power, um, which, you know, I think I'm just curious as to your thoughts on that. Yes, th- that is true. And also the NFL uh, needs to put uh, is in PR mode, right? And, and as, as well as the, the NBA, because they know that the lion's share of the bodies that is producing them billions of dollars are black and mostly black, but black and brown bodies, right? They're they're, and and very little of that money ever goes back to the communities that nurture those people. In fact, most of the athletes, I I just learned this statistic come from Southern states. I didn't know that, but, uh, 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 but I, maybe that's where you can get out and play football 20, you know, all year round or something. But anyway, the idea that you're sucking out their talent, it is producing you billions of dollars, and none of that falls back into the neighborhood. It means that you're already not interested, really, in my opinion, in the issue. You're interested in the PR and keeping those bodies happy enough to break themselves for you to make you billions. And here's Kevin who writes, I was curious whether the majority black police forces that were referred to earlier have resulted in improved relationships between the community and the police and reduced police abuses. Well, I will put it, I will put it, answer that this way. Um, of, of all the police departments in America that now have to operate, uh, uh, under um, agreements with the Department of Justice, only two of them are in the South. All the other states under under these uh, agreements, these are because they violated civil rights. That's the uh, jurisdiction under which the, the, um, the DOJ does this. All of them are in places to which black people moved during the Great Migration. You are a son of the South, as you describe yourself, coming from Louisiana originally and now back in Atlanta. And I'm wondering about your thoughts about uh, what I alluded to before, that is the election of uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock to the U.S. Senate, but also perhaps uh, weighed against that, the election of someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia. Right, but that's the difference between uh, what statewide power and uh, and uh, regional power means. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a representative, right? So there will always be pockets of people who are hostile to you. But the difference, but when you get enough people in a state, regardless of those pockets, it the, the, it is the statewide vote that don't, that matters. So you can be all every single black person in 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 um, uh, Georgia could have lived in Atlanta and still elected those senators because it is a statewide vote. And that's the difference. Uh, 
one of the callers before had asked something along these lines about how you are you have uh, uh, black mayors and police chiefs in particular cities and like uh, and in in Baltimore and you still get afraid of gray. What I'm saying is there are no cities in the Constitution here anywhere. No towns, no cities, nothing. Right. As far as the Constitution is concerned, the cities exist at the behest of the state. That's why you have uh, a preemption all the time. If the mayor of Atlanta wants to crack, wants to shut things down more to get COVID under control, she can't because the governor says, I don't won't let you do it. And she has no power to overrule him because you're a city in a state and the state has the power according to the constitution. Again, I what guess you have to do is move from just having municipal power to having state power and then the real changes begin. Guest is Charles Blow. His new book is The Devil You Know, a Black Power Manifesto. Wanda writes, thank you for such a thought-provoking conversation. Growing up in Oakland, I've seen the changes that have transpired over the last 60-plus years of my life. Quotes have come to mind. Know your history so we don't allow it to repeat itself. And also understanding the theoretical framework of divide and conquer. Getting back just for a moment to the Great Migration, um, there was, uh, you say actually at one point, the Great Migration was to the Black South what uh, the transatlantic slave trade did to West Africa. This has to do with the vacancy that was left and the gender imbalance and all of those uh, really consequences. And uh, you had mentioned Chicago before. You were also talking uh, in the book about Lorraine Hansberry and Raisin in the Sun as being uh, in real time uh, because at the core of Black life was uh, as you argue in a play like that, uh, was family and uh, and race. Um, was it, a, in some respects, a kind of betrayal of the race? I didn't know if you were intimating that by leaving the South to go to the North. No, it's it, not necessarily a betrayal. It's just that it it fractured the Black community in a way. In the very beginning, um, uh, something like 90% of the people who, were, who moved were men, young men. Uh, that started to even out later. In as like I said, the Great Migration um, lasted over sixty years, so that even not much later. But in the very beginning, it just it just sucked all these young um, black men out of black society in the South, and that was traumatic. Um, could you blame them though? It was primarily black men who were being lynched. It was primarily black men who were the the the. Um, uh, breadwinners and farmers in their family, and the the cotton crop had collapsed because of the bull weevil infestation. So it's not it's not like you could blame them. It's just that it had an effect on on the 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 the, the kind of community structure of blackness in the South. You know, I can't help thinking about uh, mentioning Chicago and talking about all those blacks who left during the Great Migration, especially young men. Uh, there's a great story Richard writes called The Big Boy Leaves Home, uh, and it was it was a classic story of leaving the South and going up north to Chicago, and mm-hmm. it was written before Native Son. But I, I can't help thinking about um, the fact that Wright also wrote about what he called the ethic of living Jim Crow, and he was saying that in the South, uh, you were constantly under this pressure, you know, of... Uh, something that simply was liberated to a greater degree in the North. Uh, you couldn't, you know, look at a white woman. You couldn't, you could be lynched for just looking at a white woman. Yes, but I, I, make, it, I make the counter argument to that, which is this, that uh, in, in, during Reconstruction, Mississippi of all places were the black power center of, of, of black America. People actually moved from the North to Mississippi. 
Mississippi, uh, uh, in one of his first elections uh, after uh, black people granted the right to vote by the 15th Amendment, the black population, they were all men at the time, far outnumbered the number of white men who were registered to vote. They sent an enormous black delegation uh, to the state house. That's those that delegation forced the, their counterparts to. They had two empty sentences. You're going to put a black person in one of them, and they did. Uh, Mississippi gave us our first two black senators. The only reason that Mississippi is not the black power center of America right now is white terror that terrorized them out of voting. Called the Constitutional Convention in 1890, which was one of the first Southern states to do so. Uh, uh, wrote white supremacy into the constitution of the state of Mississippi and then other Southern states followed. I say the reason that 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 system that Wright is is suggesting existed, it did exist, was because of that terror. They won that battle. They cannot be allowed to win the war. Black people have to, cannot let that victory stand. And I have to leave it there. Pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. That's Charles Blow. Again, his new book is The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. He is a columnist with The New York Times. We're here with you Monday through Friday. Tomorrow on Forum Atlantic Magazine, writer James Fellows joins us to talk about Donald Trump's impeachment trial. I hope you will join us for that. And always remind you, you can let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear by emailing forum at kqed.org. Thank you for being a part of this morning's program. And please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.